as Africans, as women from the South, creativities have always been central to our lives. And so we have always spoken through creativities and we've always articulated our lives and the complexity of our lives through creativities. Any theory that does not take creativities into account, that does not theorize from the creativities that inspire our lives, is in a way a very watered down, a very dry, a very poor theory for us. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa Dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Professor Christo Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts, and in this dialogue I will be speaking to Professor Charlene Khan and Fuad Asfor about the recent African Feminisms, AFEMS conference, which was held at the Witt School of Arts from the 5th to the 7th of September. Charlene Kahn, who is one of the organizers of the conference, is an associate professor in the Department of Fine Arts at WITS and is a visual artist whose multimedia work focuses on the socio-political realities of a post-apartheid society and the intersectionality of race, gender, class. Fawad Asfor, who was also an organizer and participated in the AFEMS conference, is a writer, editor and publisher who organizes independent spaces for discourse and artistic collaboration. He is currently a visiting research associate in the Witt School of Arts. Charlene and Fuad, welcome to our Aura podcast. We're going to be talking about the AFEMS conference, which is just finished last month. And I understand this is in fact the third iteration of the FM's conference. And the first two were at Rhodes University in the Eastern Cape. And how did the conference begin? And what were your objectives in establishing the FM's conference? Thank you very much, Christo, for this opportunity to discuss FM's and also to Ara and Mellon for funding the third AFEMS, which was very important to this third staging. So AFEMS came about through a lucky conversation between three people who had already been thinking about their own manifestations of African feminist colloquia, symposium, and the kind of go-between in these conversations was Dr. Tando and Giovanni, a literature scholar who's actually based at Rhodes University right now in the English department. And so she began a conversation with me about having a one-day African feminist colloquium. And I had applied the year before to the National Lottery Foundation to have a one-week African feminist in Daba, but that was really based around my ideas of bringing in women from the diaspora and from around the country and workshopping them around African feminist creativities. And so I saw a way of building on Tando's ideas. And then she brought in as well Linda Gichanda Spencer, Dr. Linda Spencer from the Department of Literary Studies as well. And we put out a call at Rhodes University and very soon it turned from a one-day colloquium into this massive, sprawling <laughs> colloquium. And so it became a three-day event, and at the heart of it became the creativities. And two departments joined together. It was 
the Department of Literary Studies and Visual Arts. And so it was really a fundamental meeting of minds around creativities and what the importance of creativities is to African feminisms. And I think Linda's contribution, at, even at that stage, was that it had to be multivocal African feminisms. There's not one strain of thought. It also came out of the year before having attended a decolonizing feminisms conference here at Fitz University. And every other speaker was young black woman. And they were mentioning the names Bell Hooks and Pumla Gola and Yvette Abrams. And so in my mind, it was like, you know, Feminisms have been decolonized for a long time. So constantly talking about decolonizing feminisms was a platform for whom? When we already had a huge trajectory of African feminisms that was very vibrant. So another central axis was the fact that our knowledges were already established and to already have deeper conversations around that trajectory of established knowledges rather than constantly thinking about how to decolonize Western feminisms, but rather concentrating on African feminisms that had already existed for hundreds of years, even if that terminology had not been applied to it. And so those were the kinds of central axes around which African Feminist Conference was established. And from the very beginning, we didn't want creativities to be this kind of spectacle, you know, at the end of the day, you have an exhibition or a film screening, but it was central to everything that we did, to the, to the decolonizing methodology that we're using in the conference. So a large part of our day was spent in creative conversation, creative dialogue. And what we found was even after the first one, people were incredibly responsive to that. So even by word of mouth after the first one, we had doubled attendance for the next conference. And this has gone on this year as well, even when we limited the conference, was that people found it incredibly different from every other conference that they've attended. And so that again comes out of black feminist methodologies in which we're theorizing from the epicenters of our agency and that agency can best be expressed through the creativities that that create that speak to the kinds of multiple intersections at which our lives are governed. Now the development of the AFEMS conference does seem to have paralleled or coincided with the FISMAS fall and that eruption of student militancy on South African campuses. And it struck me from Johannesburg that Rhodes had a particularly feminist edge to the demonstrations, the protests that were taking place. Was that any kind of a linkage to what you were doing, how you were conceptualizing the AFEMS? If I'm not mistaken, I think that fees must fall happened just after AFEMS. But certainly on campus, that voice was very vocal. And I think the shift for us, or maybe the shift for campuses, was listening to those voices. But for those of us who are women of color, our voices are always central to everything that we do. So it's for us, it's nothing new to hear women of color's voices and to, to hear those politics. It was just that those politics came to the fore during Fees Must Fall. And so I think it was very fortuitous for us that it was given impetus in that kind of way. And the woman came out in those kind of masses. 
But I think it would be misguided to just put it to that moment. Because as I said, you know, going to the decolonizing feminisms conference before, what was clear to me was that the work of at least two generations of black feminist scholars in South Africa had given birth to that generation that demonstrated in those strong ways. So the fact that names like Bell Hooks and Yvette Abrams and Patricia Hill Collins and Amato Aidu and stuff, Paulo Ferreira and Steve Biko were coming out of the mouth of babes, so to speak, demonstrated that the work of those feminists had paid off. That was a kind of an everyday knowledge that had permeated. And what it also showed was how misguided scholars were to think that because somebody was putting up a hundred selfies, they didn't also know that knowledge. You know, we, we were very quick to to think that because they were the selfie generation that they didn't understand politics. And I think the work of the kind of intersectional theory that has been taught by a whole two generation of black and African feminists on campuses has paid off by showing that we were the superficial ones in the ways in which we, we were actually regarding the youth. And over the three years of the conference's existence, particularly with the move to WITS for the third iteration in 2019, what changes have you observed in the thinking, in the politics? Is there any kind of a rupture or development that's discernible in the kind of discussions that have been taking place, the kind of work that's been presented? There's lots of differences, but Makanda is a very small town and you can see the kind of microcosm of society that South Africa is demonstrated in very harsh ways in Makanda. And so I don't think it's particularly racist, or particularly sexist or particularly depressive. I think it's just a microcosm. You feel things on a much harsher level than you do in other places in South Africa. But in Johannesburg, I think people are a lot more woke, so you're getting a lot more diversity of people. But there was a different set of challenges coming here in terms of Joburg. A lot of logistical challenges in terms of coming to Johannesburg. Things that you could take for granted in, in a small town. There was logistical challenges in Makanda in terms of some days you wouldn't know if there's going to be water. <laughs> you didn't know if there's going to be electricity. So you had to make plans in terms of that, realistic plans. With this one, in the same week, the xenophobic attacks broke out and we live in the city centre. So that was incredibly frightening because we didn't know how to get home. We actually didn't know how to leave the city centre the next day. That was a lot of our also being aware of a number of our participants were going to be affected by that because we had a number of international participants as well from the rest of the continent. So how they were affected about their safety. It also seemed quite fickle for like the last day dinner. We were planning to host our dinner at the Witz Art Museum Cafe to be sitting there dancing and having this lavish dinner while just outside people are demonstrating. And you, and you know part of that xenophobic protest is really dire poverty that's attached to that. So there's a lot of those kinds of challenges. 
Wits is an administrative nightmare. It's a vast roiling machine that's just an absolute disaster to deal with. Academic work, it's just hostile to that kind of thing. So the challenges of dealing with that was just, we're still dealing with it months later. On the one hand, you would think having a huge conference like this would have been a bonus. It's the only kind of large-scale black feminist, Africanist, conference that I know of in the continent. I haven't even heard of anything like this in the world. But at every stage, there was an obstacle to that, except for in our school where there was support. And so it was just a logistical nightmare dealing with small things. I don't think I've ever been this stressed out in my life. People have this impression that there's loads of money attached to conferences that when you charge a conference registration fee, that it's lots of money. They had this impression, oh, you're raking in the money. And so even as feminists, they make demands of you in ways to the point that eventually you send, we had to send out a mail saying, everybody here is a volunteer and you will be polite to our volunteers because everybody's studying and everybody's working. And so you will be polite to the people who are giving off their time for this. Part of the, our last day keynote was then to open up our finances to everyone, to show them that the only thing that their registration fee paid for was the last day dinner. That was all, because everything else had to be subsidized and was money that we raised. number of people just burst out into tears at that keynote because they were so shocked. I don't think anybody's opened up their books to conference attendees to show them what it's really like because our registration fee was 250 rands for students and 500 rand for participants. And it's the first year we've even charged a fee because it's part of our principle because we know how much that 500 rand means to people in South Africa. We know how much that 250. And even with that fee, we had a number of dropouts. So in principle... We actually don't attend decolonizing conferences that claim to be decolonial conferences that have these huge registration fees that make it inaccessible to people in this country because it it just becomes an elitist venture. And so all of these kinds of challenges were enormous logistically and economically, but at the same time, the energy and the vibe was unbelievable because there was a whole busload of people that came up from Rhodes University that Rhodes in the Office for Institutional Culture sponsored that busload. And this came out of the relationship we've established over the last two years with the community there, the black feminist community there. And they were like, no, we're definitely coming up. And the range of productions that they put on, some of them staged original productions that they premiered first time at AFEMS. The commitment was just, it, it humbles me as, as a scholar and as an artist for people to be that committed to what we're doing and to the vision of this platform we're creating um, to stage black feminist scholarship, creativities, and just intellectual work. Fuad, as one of the conference organizers, maybe I can ask you to discuss the kind of uptake you had for the WITS, this third iteration. My understanding was you actually had unprecedented number of people applying to come to the conference. Yeah, so we were really humbled and it was kind of also again a surprise how many people submitted papers or people came even, for instance, from Mozambique for only one day to present a paper. 
paying travel costs and just coming for that one short presentation. So it's always really surprising to see how people actually realize the importance of these kind of forums and also then get connected with others. Another thing I thought was at WITS kind of very interesting was what started actually at Rhodes. It was very interdisciplinary between artists. So where visual artists, uh, students at Rhodes would never really come in contact with, for instance, performance students. At FMs, it was kind of, suddenly they worked together. It, it became a very organic kind of collaboration. And even outside then of the conference, you would see students starting to work together for their coursework, for their projects. And so I thought that was really something that struck me when FM started and also in the other projects, which uh, Charlene kicked off. But also at WITS, I found it really interesting to see these kind of organic connections, right? So you have Salona Mokuku going from Drama for Life. She's now at Rhodes. So they sent people to WITS now for the conference. And so it was kind of a very interesting collaboration in terms then of artistic research to also break down the disciplinary boundaries, which are obviously also very Eurocentric. Another thing I found interesting in terms of how people that took also the opportunity to actually realize more performative presentations in the conference itself. So we had that as Rose as well, where presenters would use the space differently. They would walk around while presenting their paper. So I think these kind of more creative approaches towards knowledge productions, really, these are very important for this conference. And actually, that's why FMS also actively encourages creative proposals in terms of not only conference presentations. Maybe, Charlene, you want to say something that it might be necessary to mention that FMS is also part of what Charlene started in the larger project of Art on Our Mind. So the idea of Art on Our Mind was already kind of a framework for the conference itself, right? So Art on Our Mind is a project that tries to generate primary and secondary material on South African women of color artists. And so every three months we have a creative dialogue with a chosen South African woman of color artist. And our volunteer research team researches the artist and finds as much material as we can on her. We generate questions on her and then we have this public dialogue which we then ask her the questions on her methodologies, her influences, you know, what inspires her, what are her challenges in the field. And then this is videoed, it's put online with all of the materials we can find so that whether a student is from the Cape Flats or an established researcher from Harvard, the idea is that when they go on Art on Our Mind uh, archive, they can find as much information as they possibly can on this artist. We combine young emerging woman artists with established artists, with scholars. So we've had creative theorization panel with Pumla Gola, Yvette Abrams, Betty Govindan, Nilika Jawadana. We've had curating panel with Nomusa Makubu and Same Mluli, Nontobeko Ntumbela. And then we've done talks with Senzedi Makasela, Reshma Chiba, Nontobeko Ntumbela, Lalito Jawarilal, Mamela Nyamza, Shelly Bear 
Harry, the filmmaker. So we have this huge archive that we're building up. And then Linda Jichanda Spencer also has her own melon-funded project, which is the Urban Connections in African Popular Imaginaries, which is also looking at the range of, you know, she works with literature, but she's, uh, but she's looking at that in the widest possible way and looking at how popular imaginaries influences a literature in the widest sense. And so I think we're about breaking down those kinds of traditional boundaries and categories within what is traditionally fine arts and literature scholarship and opening that up to the wider sense of African creativities and how we theorize about our lives through these various platforms. Now, your theme this year was theorizing from the epicenters of our agency. How does the prioritizing of theory fit with creative practice? Was there any tension in that? Does that not give privilege to theorists who work with texts and linguistic structures and put the creative practitioners on the back foot? For black and African feminists, there's never been these kinds of dichotomies that have ever existed between theory and practice. And so someone like Molare Ogundupe Leslie or Amato Aidu, Patricia Hill Collins in the US, Bell Hooks, Pumla Gola here in South Africa, what they argue is that as Africans, as women from the South, is that creativities have always been central to our lives. And so we have always spoken through creativities and we've always articulated our lives and the complexity of our lives through creativities. The problem with theory is that while I'm speaking and while I'm writing, it's in a singularity. The teleology of it does not speak to the complexity of our lives. It structures it, it ordains it in a very teleological way, which does not actually speak to the intersectionality and the complexities of where we're at every single day. Even while I'm talking to you right now, there's a shitload of things that are happening right now at this moment. There's violences that are going on right now. There's violences that have come from right now in order to just do this podcast. And so this way that I'm speaking to you in this very ordered way does not speak to that. Whereas creativities, we say that old phrase, picture says a thousand, speaks a thousand words, but that is true. And music does that, it transcends that, you know, visuality does that. Creativities respond in much more complex and complicated ways. And so any theory that does not take creativities into account, that does not theorize from the creativities that inspire our lives, is in a way a very watered down, a very dry, a very poor theory for us. And so this is why if you look at bell hooks, in every kind of bell hooks text, bell hooks is not just pulling on Foucault or she's not just pulling on a Dubois, she's also then pulling on a Toni Morrison novel. Toni Morrison's fictional novels speak more to the black experience than just a Dubois excision of African-American experience. And so fictional novels will help us recognize ourselves in that experience. And so 
I think this is what is amazing about being in the arts and why we are also invested in the arts is because it's able to capture the complexity of our lives. And so the theorizations that we are speaking about, theorizing from the epicenters of our lives, is theorizing from the complexities of our lives, from the agencies of our lives, and that is from the centrality of the creativities that is in our lives. And that's not just arts in the traditional sense. You know, what I'm wearing right now is incredibly beautiful, although, although people who are hearing this aren't able to see it, but you can vouch for that. And that is creativity. This is how I define myself, you know, what I'm wearing, how I style my hair. These are all creativities that enact a certain agency that I identify myself with. It's how I carry myself. It's not just traditional art on the world. It's a very flat idea, and that's also a very Eurocentric idea. So it's how do we build ourselves? How do we style our homes? How do we carry ourselves despite the kinds of multiple oppressions that is on our lives? And what are the arts that we make in the everyday, but also in the spectacular things that we do put on the walls and that we send out into the walls? So it's understanding the dynamism of that complexity that is our lives, but also that is the arts that afflicts that dynamism of our lives. Food, for yourself as a male subject, how did you construe or position yourself relative to what is a black feminist event and you as an organizer you chaired a panel you gave a paper how did you deal with your own positionality relative to the theme of the event well thank you for that incredibly difficult question and it's a question i think i need to ask myself every day in a way i can't lie around these kind of things of me being actually white-skinned and male and have this kind of reap in the privileges in social settings. At the same time, I'm also kind of busy with thinking about solidarities, what also Bell Hooks writes about in one of her really great texts, how you need to be able to build solidarities across the intersectional barriers which people build. So in my work, I try to deal with also kind of identities or how are actually identities borders in one's body and how can one transgress or how can one relate or make them visible or put them out to question them and to actually use this kind of vulnerability, which is a bit of a buzzword these days, but really to take that seriously as something and say, okay, I'm prone to make mistakes and even more mistakes, and that's but a chance to actually try to do something different. So for me, the engagement in FMs is more of an attempt to engage with these kind of issues and problems and also to accept when there are spaces where I can't say something or where I should feel I shouldn't be present, maybe. And at the same time, It's incredibly enriching, so I'm learning a lot because these kind of practices, right, they have been theorized in many different ways. So there's this book by Philomena Mari, Critical Fictions, which was published in the 90s. And so I think this kind of thought around theory, creativity, what comes first and how does each other feed into each other has been around for a long time, right? And that's also what decolonizing the arts is about. So for me, what's actually at the foreground is how can I engage with this without actually, you know, like parachuting in and taking away and building a career from that, that would be the easy move, but to kind of help build something which is larger than that what you start, right? And I think this is something we learn from those great people. Like, I mean, Yvette Abrams is a scholar and now she makes uh, organic soap. So that's also a very strong 
act in terms of doing something, which is very much also against lots of economical pressures. So I think these kind of considerations are always at the center when working in these kind of contexts. Did we push you further as an organizer? In the way that the conference was structured, what interested me is I hear your insistence on creativity as a fundamental form of being and engagement, particularly for black feminists in Africa. Yet when I look at the structure of your conference, in many ways it replicated a very conventional classical conference where you had papers being presented during the day. You had three tracks of paper presentations, keynotes, panels, and then you had the creative performances, the book launches. Coming more from the creative epicenters, you, you had those happening in the evenings. Is that a wrong reading of it? Not entirely true. So, first of all, I can't sit through... I don't know if you've been to any of these literary conferences, but they go till seven in the evening, like triple panels. I can't do that. After like four o'clock, I'm buggered. I really can't do it. And they have stamina. I don't. So what we tend to do is we have longer lunch breaks, which is also about self-care. But you will see in our program, we put the panel papers earlier, which I think is very generous from our panelists because they often have to triple up and which means their audiences get diluted, but they tend to accept that. And then sometimes from two and from three or four on most days, we're actually having creative programs. And our days run till nine o'clock, and we ask a lot from our audiences for them to be staying till that late, and they do. People are really invested. So you'll see like the Mamela was there, I think at two o'clock in the afternoon. Previously, we even had Art on Our Mind talks at 12 in the day. So it depends on how we structure the program, how people are feeling, especially how many papers we receive. But we do tend to structure the papers earlier in the, in the day because we think people are fresher and otherwise people get a bit more tired and they don't tend to think as critically. So we want to give people who are presenting papers a lot more engagement in terms of that. Whereas in the afternoons, they can sit back and be receptive to what the artists are doing. But we do think very critically about how much we program and how much people can take and how much they can receive, which is sometimes not very popular with the artists because they want us to jam-pack people, they want us to make people stand for an hour and a half and things like that, which we are always considering. And so we're always thinking very carefully about what we're programming next to each other. In previous years, we've had game-playing sessions. We've had sessions where we've allowed people to actually just have yoga and things like that for them to refresh. And I wish we could actually extend the program so that we had more time like that for self-care. But part of it is that we just get too many applications. And so we don't know whether we do need to get into a four-day format, into a longer format, but our budget just doesn't allow that because it's too expensive. We need to accommodate a lot of people in that program. But those are the kinds of things. So for instance, you know, so we do think very carefully about self-care and maintenance and what we program where for people and how their mental state can take what they can. So there's a very careful programming throughout the day in terms of who gets to experience what. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I also think it is a little bit about kind of 
you know, like how do you effect change? You know, like you can create a conference with an open program and then community cooking and all these things, but how do you not let this become an empty gesture just because it's different, right? And so I'm thinking when you go to conferences, humanities conference, like Charlene says, I also can't sit through many sessions. But at the same time, I think by allowing people to present and then actually to experience other presentations which are more performative. So I was in one panel and the visual artist presented their work. Then there was a community organization, Epicusini Solutions, they presented their work. So it's like a small process, I think, of also allowing people who have been grown and, and socialized into that humanities thinking and humanities paper presentation to actually latch onto creative practices, to find out other ways of doing things by just sitting there and then thinking, oh, the book I'm discussing, it has a cover, there's visuals on it, so why am I not talking about that, for instance? So that the participants come up, right? So the structure is a structure. You can fill it with whatever you want. So we had spear planting sessions proposed, which unfortunately didn't happen because the participants couldn't come. So I'm seeing actually in the future much more exciting things in a much more traditional structure. That's so my take. Yes, so it looks like on paper that it says panels, but within the panels, I mean, this is why you have to experience FMs. So what people do within the panels is amazing. So you have a complete performance presentation within the panel. And what we try to do is program so that you don't get, people don't get stuck into different modes. And people were incredibly excited by some of the mixing and how people rose to the occasion of the performances that happened within that. So it looks on paper as one thing, but unless you come to, well, actually, you don't have to come to, you can also see online because all of the videos will be there within a month. But you'll see some of the range of performances that occur within the panel section. The book launches are not just book launches, they're performative presentations as well. They're entire performance lectures. Could you give an example where there was this performative element and, and how did that advance the dialogue or challenge the dialogue? Any come to mind from the conference? So Jodi Pather had this whole performance and she was a very young scholar. It's one of her first conference visitations and she was really nervous. And so she didn't feel like standing in the Apollonia Lecture Theatre at the front. And so she sent her seeds. She had these, these seeds that she, was, she sent and she was talking through the trajectory of seeds. And as the seeds went across the entire lecture venue, she started following the seeds across the entire thing because it made her feel much more comfortable. But what happened in that was that the organic performance actually became her following the trajectory of the seeds, which then people actually started commenting on how they found her following the seeds, even though it was an impromptu performance for her, it spoke more to her actual idea of the trajectory of that seeds follow and human evolution than if she just stood on the podium. And that gave her ideas about how she could present in future. Piliswalila brought her whole family album, but the family album is bare. And so she has these albums that she's taking around and people are engaging and she's performing these family albums. But 
she's a visual artist and she's more acclimatized to actually performing in public. Then there's Matumi Sang who did a presentation with her top off because her presentation was on nakedness as resistance. And so she actually presented her performance with her top off. But those also require for those spaces to be safe spaces. And they trust the feminist community for those performances to happen and for those spaces to be safe spaces as well. Just to add to that, I think we don't need to fool ourselves. So in a way, we are still used to this kind of mode of conveying knowledge, right? So there's someone standing in the front and talking. And someone like uh, Trish Spielberg, first thing what she did in her classes in the 70s was just to sit at the back of the audience, right? So for me, it's really that these moves are crucial in terms of one specific thing, which is new scholars, young academics, young students coming to the space and seeing that happening as a norm. For them to see that the format doesn't need to be completely scrapped, right? Because the oral presentation, I think there is something to it, right? In the oral presentation of knowledge. However, in combination with performative moves, like Shadid said with Jody did, Beverly Barry did it last year. She had different stations throughout the lecture space and she had exhibited objects. And so she spoke to the objects. Her research is on the Khoisan art and how it is framed in museology. So I think these kind of practices can grow from a full new framing of practices, also of how to speak to knowledge. So this is where I'm kind of hoping that this will set precedences for formats where people take it further than we could even imagine, like other possibilities. Charlene, you talk about the necessity of the conference as a safe space, which allowed some of your participants to do things like speak without a top. Yet, I believe at the same time you had this disruptive male intruder. That just seemed too bizarre that here was a conference only dedicated to African feminism at the same time that we were having these huge demonstrations against gender-based violence, particularly down in Cape Town, but it was also happening here. And then your very conference space was being violated by this disruptive male presence. Yeah, and him making very lewd remarks to conference attendees. It really was incredibly bizarre. And violent and thankfully the you know head of department stepped in at times even bodily to intervene the campus protection services response was incredibly weird because when they were called in they had to then call in backup and while they waited for backup what was strange was that he would still then be hitting on other women that were passing by and the campus protection wouldn't intervene while he was doing this and women would have to make wide arcs in order to avoid him. And so it shows that our campus protection services don't know how to deal with gender-based violence and even in their presence they will watch it and not intervene while they wait for backup. At every instance, he gets treated as comrade and ushered out. But what we found out is that he's been a presence, a nuisance, at many different occasions on campus, and many departments have called for help in removing him from the university and barring him from the university, and this has not been done. And so 
clearly campus protection services either needs to send all of their staff for gender-based violence training, knowing how to deal with the situation or to have a specific unit that deals with it. And it's beyond this person just being removed from campus politely. They have to call the police in to have him arrested. I just can't believe that this person who's making threats against me, he now profiles me whenever he sees me in Bromfontein, is allowed to do this and it's okay. At the time that we've just seen what has happened to a young girl being violently and brutally raped and killed. And we're just still going, well, comrade. So for you, this intrusion was symptomatic of the lack of support, the lack of awareness around gender-based violence, both on this campus and more broadly across the whole city? No, we can't say it's a lack of awareness. It's a lack of action and it's a lack of courage and it's a lack of men being willing to do things and enact it and it's a lack of institutions being accountable. So it's not lack of awareness. I mean, how much more awareness do you need? Going forward... Do you plan for there to be a fourth FMs? Is this going to be an annual event at WITS? Or do you see this going in a different direction? How to keep up the impetus that's clearly an interest that's clearly there? Well, there's already a fourth one. We'll be flying down to Cape Town in two weeks. UCT is hosting it. And so they have an amazing team that they've put together. So we're going to meet the team in order for them to brief them on the structure of AFEMS and what its core values are and to kind of hand it over to them for 2020. In 2021, it travels one final time to Rhodes University and to Dr. Benzer. So she will host it for one final time to its birthplace for its five-year anniversary. Luckily, I don't have to fundraise for that year, so I'm very grateful. <laughs> she has, you know, the Melbourne funding for that year, and so she's dedicating funding for that year. And then after the 50th anniversary, it will happen every two years after that. And so after 2021, it will be back at WITS in 2023. And so this will be its new home base. But our idea is that we would like for it to be a kind of a pan-African conference where when sister institutions want to host it, it's not supposed to be something that we hold on to. And certainly not even something that myself or, or Linda wants to hold on to. But it was just something we gave birth to. It's a platform and FMS is not tied to art on our mind. FMS is not tied to copy. The idea is that it's its own entity and that people can take it over and that it's a platform for younger people to run with. It's an independent platform. This is why it has its entirely own designs, all of which Fuad is more mainly done for free. <laughs> so it's its own entire independent design brand. What's exciting is that we are now looking at new kind of funding initiatives because part of also going to hosting it every second year is that, you know, on a yearly basis, trying to raise funds just basically takes over our lives. I'm an artist, I'm a researcher, I can't do anything else except raise funding for FMs. And so I can't keep that up. Also, in all honesty, universities are not willing to fund black feminist work. They can say they do, and government institutions can say they do, but to date, they literally put the least amount of funding. This year, half of our funding came from Penn State University, from somebody who visited FMs last year and basically said, here's $10,000 because I believe in this idea. And that $10,000 is what made FMs 
2019 possible. Without that funding, we couldn't have existed this year. You know, the National Institute for Humanities and Social Sciences, their conference funding, two years in a row we've applied, we haven't gotten a cent from them, not one cent. And we've had people look over our applications and we ask them, well, why haven't we gotten any money? Well, we've had too many applications and that's been the only rationale. And so there's no money for us, basically, you know, apart from like the little pockets of generosity we've been able to access. So this year we've hooked up with Indigo and the platform that they've created called I Am Citizen. And it's a fundraising initiative where they basically put all of your documents online, and then they invite people, all different kinds of funders and organizations, to have a look at your organization, and they try to assist you in raising funds. And so that's the kind of way now we're looking to go in order to secure the future of FMs and to secure it long-term rather than every year trying to raise funding from year to year. But I Am Citizen is also looking at how we can build a feminist network out of that to allow everyone who attends FMs to start communicating with each other as well and building up a feminist alliance. And this is what's great about the fact that it's going to UCT next year is that we've established a bit of a WITS, a sisterhood. You know, we're going to establish a UCT sisterhood. We'll go back to our road sisterhood for one last time so that we have like this cross section of South Africa that we're building up this alliance, which for us is very important that we have this cross section of South Africa because it means a lot to us to be able to speak to the whole of South Africa. It was really heartbreaking for us that a lot of people who applied from Cape Town and the Eastern Cape were not able to come to AFIMS uh, in Johannesburg at the last minute because we applied to NAC for funding and they still haven't released the results after how many months. And so that was not possible to bring them up. These kinds of things have very practical outcomes for us. But we're hoping to change that because I think if you do want to ensure the future of things, you have to be a little bit more inventive than just looking to institutions, to universities that are under strain. I think Mellon's been fantastic over the last few years. I think what we've appreciated about Mellon funding in the many years that they have been here is that they give you the monies and they trust you to do what you say you're going to do. They're not like hounding you. There's no agenda attached to it. And so I think they've been great, but we also know that's not going to last forever. So these these kind of seed fundings were there for us to actually launch and to find other means to sustain ourselves. Charlene and Fouad, thank you very much for coming in and discussing FMs. And I wish you all the best with the future developments and really taken by your plans because obviously innovative approaches towards fundraising and networking are absolutely crucial to being able to continue with the developments such as FMs. So I wish you both well. Thank, Thank you, you very for much. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Christo Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research at the Witt School of Arts and Professor Charlene Kahn and forward us for. This podcast was produced by Elna Schutz and was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts at the University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music, Decompress, was composed by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license.